We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. From the files of Schlock and Awe, welcome to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. Here are your hosts, Matty Budrevich and Dave Wayne. Don't you dare touch me! Stand back! No! No! Hello, and welcome to Natural Selection, the home of the Creature Feature Podcast. Uh, my name is Dave Wayne, and normally sat on my right hand side is Matty Bedroge, but today he's not. He's away uh, because we've got to do this remotely because things are going a little bit bat soup. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that he's dug out that sex doll I gave him in order to, you know, at least have me represented in his living room. And to be honest, it would probably have a great deal more charisma than me. But we will see. So, Matthew Podrevich, are you there? Hello, Dave. I am here in remote form, and I do indeed have a blow-up doll next to me in a baseball cap with a crudely drawn soul patch. Uh, just, And I really think it captures the essence of you. Good. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, good. I can see it there, and it looks fantastic. It looks younger than me, to be honest, which is a bit of an insult, but I'm fine. Oh, good. good. But this is all very strange, isn't it? You know, as if we're doing, we're recording a creature feature podcast remotely. Yeah, it's it's unnerving, and it's uh, I'm I'm hoping that the audio will be okay for our our, our regular crew of listeners. I but think we'll... we really uh, we missed an opportunity to uh, talk about bats as well. We should have really done that this time. <laughs> we should have done Lewis Morneau's bats and uh, bat bats two human harvest. <laughs> yeah, none of people are talking about bats at the moment, so yeah, I think. Might be a little bit too soon, but, uh, you know, certainly I want to pencil in for a future episode. But today, what are we discussing today? And you're going to tell us all about that. Well, today uh, we are going to be looking at two films from the halcyon days of sci-fi. Well, formerly, as it was back then, the sci-fi channel. Um, and to me, that makes sense because, well, as we say, we're living in the middle of a global pandemic and uh, we're about to be massacred now by a wave of murder hornets. So the way I see it, uh, we are just one lava lantula or sharknado away from actually living in the plot of a sci-fi channel movie. So, yeah, we're going to talk about sci-fi originals. Okay. So the sci-fi original was launched by the channel's current executive vice president of programming and original movies, Thomas Vitale, uh, and his cohorts, Ray Canella and Chris Regina in 2001. Um, Vitale, Canella and Regina, um, what they used to do was uh, they would approach a production house like people we've talked about so far, like Cinetel or New Image, and they'd go to them with an idea or a concept. Um, ob- obviously, as time went on, the companies themselves would start presenting them with ideas and concepts once they knew what sci-fi were after. And so they'd go to these companies and the sci-fi lot would give Cinetel, New Image, etc., 
a flat fee of $750,000. You know, the reasoning for that was, as uh, Canella explained to Wired in 2004, is that they wanted movies, not problems, so everyone got the same $750,000 deal. So, as the typical sci-fi uh, original costed between $1.4 and $1.8 million, uh, the rest of the money that Cinetel, New Image, Active, UFO, all of the sort of in-house production service companies that sci-fi were buying from and would start to buy product from, uh, the rest of their budget would be made up from foreign licensing and domestic home video agreements. So basically with something like, uh, I don't know, Cinetel's Snakehead Terror, um, they'd get $750,000 from sci-fi and then the rest would come from whatever company they had a deal with for the film's release in Europe or the film's uh, DVD release um, in America. However, although everyone getting the same deal was what happened for the most part across the board, there was one company who had a slight edge over the competition and, uh, well, at least for a short period and that was uh, Amberlight. They were owned by Universal, who of mm. course own and operate the Sci-Fi Channel. While the stuff that they would make would run the gamut in terms of entertainment quality, the films do seem a little bit slicker um, and, dare I say it, a little bit better finance, a little healthier budget-wise. You know, it's pure speculation, you know, but yeah. considering that Active were owned by Sci-Fi's parent company, chances are they probably had a little bit more than the $750,000 pumped into them. Anyway, um, Amberlight... They made um, a couple of okayish movies. They made um, Terminal Invasion with Bruce Campbell, which was done, obviously, uh, at the peak of Bruce's uh, cool. You know, if, if Chins Could Kill had just come out, um, he was about to hit the road on the Bubba Hotep tour, and, you know, he was getting rave reviews for his performance as Elvis in that. So Terminal Invasion comes out, and for a while was, like, the second or third highest movie uh, that sci-fi had premiered. Right. Um, yeah, it was like it pulled in. It did gangbusters on the ratings. Uh, it was a record breaker for the channel. Um, Amberlight, they'd never, they'd never topped that in terms of ratings. But some of the movies were were okay since uh, they had Do or Die, uh, Threshold, and of course the two films that we're going to be looking at today, which are Webs and Bugs. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. Sorry, what did you do? I, I, I don't know. I, th- I think I just... Shelly, uh, I told you not to touch it. I, uh... Turn it off. Um... Don't move! Clear! Don't move! Don't move! All right, look. This place is hot. We'll get out of this room. We'll call headquarters. And they'll call NEST, all right? Okay. Wait, 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 what about this? We, we, we can't just leave this here. Ray, Ray, no, no, no. Don't touch it. Ray, Ray, Ray. What's that? What the hell was that? How'd we get out here? Why don't you... 
Wait for the guys. I'm gonna go look around. Yeah. Okay. You're the boss. I'll just, uh... Webs from 2003, uh, directed by David Wu. And it hit sci-fi, premiered on sci-fi on the 28th of June, 2003. We like a good spider film. We've we've covered a few good spider films, but would you say that, where would you place this in the pecking order of uh, eight-legged uh, DTVs? Thank God you didn't say eight-legged freaks. We could have ended up in so much legal hot water there. Uh, I, it, it's at the bottom with Arachnid. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. That, that low? Yeah. May, maybe even a little bit lower than Arachnid. Um, I, it, it, weird, I had really fond memories of Webs before going and uh, revisit it. Um, yeah. I remember seeing it. I didn't see it when it was when it premiered on Sci-Fi. Um, mm. I saw it a couple of years afterwards. I think I'd like, you know, it was either watched late at night on TV or rented from Mano. It's when Sainsbury's used to do their little rental section. And I can just remember really enjoying it, but it just left me cold this time. I think I have... Um, I have outgrown webs. Have you? Um, yeah, I, I wasn't a kid on it either. I mean, I know one of your rules has always been, you know, it doesn't matter technically how bad it is, just never be boring. And mm. that's its biggest fault, really, isn't it? It is just quite boring. It's not a long film. It's only 81, 82 minutes. But it, it's, just, it's, a, it's a struggle to get through, really, because um, mm. I don't know. I, I can't, aside from the boring aspect, I can't really pinpoint uh, many things that you know you can you can put a portion full blame to, but yeah, it just doesn't really work. It's a very repetitive experience, I think. Mm. The actual the premise I thought is uh, you know the, the premise is great and it's really really kooky and off off the wall. Um, you know, it's it's this uh, Richard Greco leading a, a bunch of these blue collar sparkies who are, who are going to like you know repair or dismantle the electrics in a building yeah. and they end up stumbling across this well like a, a dimension portal that takes them into an alternative chicago the film of course set in chicago even though it was shot in toronto and so they go into this alternative chicago which is overrun by spider zombies basically <laughs> these sort of weird i am legend kind of mashups between spiders and well the, the walking dead well more more the infected it's like something more like 28 days later um you know 28 days later by 30 day, by way of 30 days of night that kind of thing that premise that premise wonderfully simple really sells me i love films like 30 days of night i love Stakeland. i love i am all the different iterations of i am legend um i'm a big fan of to a certain extent you know and i, I it cribs elements from Night of the Living Dead, from Dawn of the Dead, from Day of the Dead, but ultimately it, it's just, it's a very, very wearying film because once they're in this spider realm, all it does, it just turns into an endless, endless series of chases. Yeah, and, and I mean, they're not the greatest chases to look at either, really. I mean, this this other world is very, just very drab. It's surrounded by sort of endless um, plastic sheeting. Um, mm, mm. decorating every it's a shock on a budget 
<laughs> you know, like a parallel. And while while I think that can be quite charming at times, you, you know, that considering how how slickly photographed the film is, that they could have done. I, I don't know. They could have done something more than just set it among warehouses and bed sheets and just have people running around and screaming. Yeah, but I mean, I think the whole premise of where this portal goes to. I mean, that that's the worrying thing. You do start to you do begin the film with with as you say, you know. High hopes. I mean, certainly the the initial initial few sequences in Chicago are fine. You know, you can accept the whole issue with uh, you know the electricians heading mm-hmm. into this building, and um, you know that this power source that's still alive 15 years after the building was abandoned. But as soon as we go over that different dimension, it's just ah, it's just it's just so drab. It's just there's nothing to really inject it with mm-hmm. any dynamism or. or yeah, you just feel so cold. I mean, admittedly, I don't. I know you have a great fondness for Richard Grieco. You know, he's been in some of your favourite films, from you know Jim Wynorski's Against the Law to David Dakota's Journey, Absolution. Um, you know, only only a few years prior to that, but and and he was in one of my favourite films as well from the from the nineties, which was uh, which was Catman, where he uh, he becomes a cat. Um, <laughs> everyone see Richard Grieco you know, displaying feline properties but but in this he's just he's just so bland it's it's like you know mm-hmm. you're transferring him you're transferring him to a different dimension uh in a whole new world he's he's an electrician he's an, an electrician he's a blue-collar worker and he just seems I've never seen anyone seem so unimpressed or just just he, he just takes to this new concept as oh yeah okay so we're in this you know alternate universe that's fine yeah that's great and it's just his his expression i don't know what his direct what the direction was for him in this in this film but it just seems like he just wants to be somewhere else although i will give him credit for his jumper i think you know as fisherman's <laughs> jumper oh you know and this sort of roll neck ribbed pastel blue endeavor i think it's uh it's remarkable so yeah so see it for greco's sweater but don't see it for greco's performance really mm, yeah i i he, he's always one of those actors who he's i i always presume his his set his default setting is scene chewing he seems to really relish performance he, he really has a a very strong theatrical sense about him and yet here oh. i've never seen him so subdued and so muted he had a great line though I think I forget who he was talking to. It might have been Elena, but in one of the sequences, he's he's um, he's saying about what he misses about back home, and he's he's very po-faced. He's very um, scene-chewing, as you say, and he says, uh, you know, I just I just want to get back home to to birthday parties, cool jazz, and hot pizza. And I thought, <laughs> oh, oh, Richard, don't do this. You know, come on. I hope that was a scene um, of improvisation. I hope that is something that that he, he believes that that is what everyone would miss. I mean, I certainly I, I'd miss uh, pizza at least. You know, like even I suppose cool jazz music. You know, because <laughs> it, it it does lend an ambience to things. But uh, no, I, I think his sort of you know quote unquote laid back quality in the film it sort of fits with the there's an aloofness to the film as well as if no one involved was particularly engaged or enamoured with the material as if everyone was just going through the motions there's a a Fangoria article 
um, about webs and bugs. Obviously, the both of them were filmed back to back in Toronto, uh, as mentioned earlier. Um, and in Fangoria two two three, there's uh, an interview with Webbs's director, Dave mm. Wu, who, of course, um, probably better known as being the editor of John Wu's A Better Tomorrow one and two, Choi Hock's Chinese Ghost Story, and A Better Tomorrow three. Um, the director of The Bride with White Hair too. You know, he's a Hong Kong action thriller horror guy. You know, and mm. he, he's got some movies with tremendous talent. Like the Bride with White Hair too is fantastic. You know, there is attempts that he tries to bring the Hong Kong style over to um, over to Webbs. But I don't know. I don't. In this interview, he says that the script wasn't ready when he got it, and he wasn't particularly enamoured with it to begin with. I think, it, you know, we are seeing Webbs as what it is, and that is a, a, a gun for hire job, basically. Yeah. It was pay for Wu to probably pay his bills that month, for everyone else involved to pay the bills that month. Um, and that sort of it does reflect on screen you know there's not there's no sort of like sense of fun to it there's no sense of you know like even what Wu tries to go for like rapid fire incident it's just very very flat there's no sense of excitement and there is certainly if he pins if he pins all the flaws onto the film script I can totally see that because there is literally no attempts at all to make any of the characters interesting other than Greco, I cannot re- recall a single single person in the movie, and I um, what I only revisited it three nights ago. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I did like the uh, the two guys that got stuck on Earth initially. Um, was it Ray and Sheldon? I thought Sheldon being a slightly geeky guy, he had a bit of wit about him, um, and the two of them together do have a, a kind of a light relief to the whole thing. You yeah. know, they're all. There's at least a, a, a tiny spark, uh, no pun intended, to their sort of friendship. But other than that, no, 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 very little else. Although the, the of course, Doctor Richard Morelli, who they encountered in the other world, was a doctor who got the whole thing started. He was thirty years ago. He invented the machine that sort of got them there into this other world. I thought he was quite good. I was quite familiar with him um, from his appearances on the TV show The PSI Factor. I don't know if you ever, if you ever saw that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, Canadian. That was Canadian as well because uh, the guy who played Morelli, Colin Fox, he's he's got a little little bit of Canadian horror and schlock form. You know, he's in Food of the Gods too. Um, he's, he's in Scanners Three. So. Uh, and of course, the Goosebumps TV series. Uh, we, so you know, he's this sort of perennial Canadian genre bit part. Oh no, 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 he was in he was in all eighty-eight episodes of PSI Factor, uh, which is like a, I think it's like a Canadian X Files, mm. uh, or a couple of years after. But they had like a Rod Sterling intro to every episode, and it was presented by be someone Canadian, surely Dan Aykroyd. No way! I, no, I didn't. I I did not know that. I'm not. That's why you watched it. <laughs> um, tell, tell me a little about. Did you ever you ever seen the TV show Sliders? Yeah. Do you think there's much of? I know it was sort of. I know um, they sort of share Paul Leonard being a producer in both Sliders and Webs. But could you see any correlation between Sliders and, and Webs? Do you see a lot of thematic kind of um, similarities? Um. God, I, have, I mean, I haven't seen Sliders since I was a kid, but in terms of the, the general setup is is like something from an episode of Sliders, you know, that they go yeah. into this this other realm. I can certainly see, yeah, I, I can see where it would 
feed into webs, particularly with the producer and that. And obviously, this film was made with the sole intention of playing on sci-fi. Um, Sliders, of course, was a very, very, you know, it was very, very popular on the network. It was constantly, you know, re- repeats were constantly uh, playing. So yeah. I can see why they were, you know, because part of the sci-fi formula was to cater to their demographic, which is why they'd have people, um, you know, with name with name value um, in the sense of they're familiar to people of the channel, which is why you'd have people like, uh, is it David David Hewlett? Is that his name from Cube? Yeah. And obviously he was in Stargate, and then he'd go on to appear in things like Boar vs. Python. Um, you'd have Lance Henriksen popping up in stuff because of Millennium, which was playing on the network. So they do tend to cater casting and story premises and concepts towards shows and other movies that their target audience would be familiar yeah. with so i can totally totally see why they'd have just been like we're going to make a film that i am legend meets uh sliders you know mm. I see why they'd do something like that yeah to, to draw upon one of the parallels obviously the parallel with the next film we're going to talk about bugs the parallel with that is obviously the sci-fi thing obviously the Amberlight thing, obviously. But also, um, same director of photography who had uh, Richard Wincenti, uh, who, who lensed both uh, webs and bugs. But they're very, totally, they're very different films. And, and I think here, I mean, if you watch them back to back, you'd be hard pressed to, to sort of figure out that the, the same guy was cin- mm-hmm. cinematography films, wouldn't you? Because this is so drab and lifeless compared to the next film. Yeah, and even, even things like the effects in this aren't uh, nowhere near as much fun as they are in Bugs. You know, mm. um, the spider people, well, the, 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 there's the spider queen who's played by uh, model slash actress uh, Dylan Burke from Terminal Invasion and Jason X. And she's a mixture of practical and CGI. You know, and, and, and she's probably the most visually interesting thing in the film. Um, yeah. And certainly... She has the best sort of giant spider type design, as uh, like like Steve Johnson's work in Arachnid. While I don't like, you know, Arachnid as a film, I think that the actual giant spider Steve Johnson created for that is excellent. And yeah. there are elements of the Spider Queen's design and you, you know physicality that recall the excellence of Johnson's yeah. work in there. Um, obviously, Johnson was nowhere near this movie. Instead, the the special effects, makeup, and prosthetics were provided by David Scott and Jeremy, uh, Jeremy McPherson. Um, Scott, of course, probably most famous for working on Ginger Snaps, Jack Brooks' Monster Slayer, Clown, Bone Daddy, uh, the 2004 remake of Dawn of the Dead, um, which, interestingly, as I've sort of alluded to earlier, Webbs shares a similar sort of style and structure with, right down to the beach ending. You know, it was, uh, it, even though it was made the year before, Zack Snyder's yeah. One of the Dead. You could. It, it's weird comparing them both next to each other. They're very structurally similar, but the actual spider people in the film, these mixtures of they're half zombie, half spider. They are really, really crummy. You know, yeah. they they're just. I can't think of any way to describe them other than they're just Canadian extras with Halloween costume type vampire fangs shoved in their mouths and big furry spider gloves on i mean god when they're running around after people doing friggin jazz hands it's just it it, it, it's very very risible yeah it's not great um to be honest i mean i even 
was trying to sort of scratch the whole thing for some kind of hidden meaning. And I, I thought maybe there's a, a slight bit of uh, homoerotica there because you've got the spider uh, freaks sort of, sort of killing all the women in order to keep the men. So mm-hmm. I thought, maybe. But no, no, that's that's probably going a, a step too far for this. But no, I, I, I like the elements. Interesting, by the way, because bugs, uh, as we'll get to, I think that's rich in in subtext. There's a lot of there's a lot of other stuff going on in bugs, um, which again, like like the effects, like the style of it, which are which makes it a vastly superior film. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to bugs. Let's wrap uh, webs up. So, I mean, you know, it is a good. It's a good B movie. It's a good B feature for Bugs, I think, isn't it? Just to sort of as a, as a comparison. So, I mean, maybe it's worth people picking up just to satisfy their sort of curiosity and uh, sort of tick a box on their spider list. But other than that, maybe one to avoid. Yeah, yeah. I think the as as you say, the only reason to pick up Webs is because it was made back to back with Bugs. And Bugs is the better film. You know, this will be this would be the type of thing where, like, you know, years from now, if anyone ever wrote the defi- if if there was suddenly some sort of I don't know revival in interest in Bugs, and someone wrote the uh, the the complete definitive history of the, of sci-fi's Bugs, um, Webs would be the little footnote that this was its supporting feature, basically. You know, this was the film that was like put out a few weeks beforehand to generate hype for it. Um, but I, you know, I, I have no desire to ever watch Webs again, which is upsetting because I, I again, as I said, I had fond memories of it, and yeah. then I, I honestly thought like, oh yeah, I really liked this. I'm going to enjoy the hell out of it, and then when it, watching it, it just, uh, just draining, boring, no sense of fun, naff effects. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. Calm down. Where is Jack Ball? Didn't you hear me? They're all dead. I'm bringing in the CDC for this. We don't have time to get them mobilized, so I need your SWAT team. Done. Benton's team is ready. We don't know what we're dealing with here, so I need everything you got. Anything you want? Lights. We need lights. Whatever looking for has been living in the darkness. Lights can give us an advantage. What about a train? There's a lot of ground to be covered. Uh, there is a surveyor car. You stay out of this, Dave. Tell me about the train. Uh, it's well-equipped. It's self-contained, self-propelled. It has communications and a closed-circuit video. Sounds good. What's your name? I'm sorry, I'm Dave Reynolds. I built the tunnel, so no one knows it better. Obviously not well enough. Can you drive this train? Absolutely. Let's go. Come on. Mr. Petronovich, do you want Jack Ball's home number? What the hell for? Well, so you can call his wife, sir. Bugs, the uh, film that aired in September uh, 2003, a little couple of months after Webbs, and um, it's, it's a whole different entity really isn't it it's 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 quite something compared to what we just spent the last 20 minutes talking about um yeah you're a fan big fan um yeah I think bugs is excellent um and as well it, it, it i had very very fond memories of this one and obviously based upon my experience with webs i was thinking oh god i'm gonna hate this i'm gonna hate bugs watched it nope still holds up still loved it it's just a great great b movie it just hits all the boxes that you want it to hit and yeah it's it's just great just a complete polar opposite of webs which is so strange because it has so much of the same crew attached to it you know you've got the script is once again written by robert robinson young who yeah. uh, also penned the uh, scripts for a bunch of other amberlight movies now before we go on to other crew people i think robinson young 
who, uh, who obviously, as well as him, he wrote the script with Patrick Doody and uh, Chris Chris Valenziano, who were a separate writing team. But I think Robinson Young is a pseudonym for someone. Yeah. Um, if you look at his credits, they're all Amberlight uh, productions. Um, yeah. I don't actually think he really exists. It's pure speculation, but based upon what we've sort of learned, you know, looking at the histories of like Concord and Full Moon and companies like that for the Schlock and Orr book, that you tend to find in each company there's one enterprising producer who, you know, he has sort of artistic desires as well as financial ones, and he maybe fancies himself as a writer or director, and he'll do something behind the scenes under a pseudonym so as not to come between like his day job. I think Robinson Young is maybe someone behind the scenes at Amberlight who who was just belting out these screenplays to order because he it, writing was maybe something he was interested in. Yeah, without but, doubt. Obviously, we may well get an email from Robinson Young, you know, uh, saying otherwise. But yeah, I, I agree. It must be someone like Paul Leonard or Derek Rappaport or or someone within the ranks there who mm-hmm. um, wanted to stab at it. It's too much of a coincidence just to have those four. Is it four credits that they've got? Yeah. Um, as well, as you said, we've got the photography once again by Richard Wincenti, um, and it's it's completely completely different this time. There is a real polished, slick look to Bugs. Uh, Wincenti, of course, in addition to Webbs, he also shot Threshold for Amberlight as well, which, as with the Robinson Young thing, sort of links into the fact that these movies are made on a production line. But yeah, Bugs, a vastly vastly superior film, and probably it's one of the best films that we've looked at, I think. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, just to, to let people catch up with what we're going on about, it's about an entomologist, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Who is Angie Everhart, uh, the great Angie Everhart, who ends up accompanying an FBI guy played by uh, Antonio Sabato Jr. And they team up with a load of commandos, guys in army guys to um inspect the subway as there's uh, sort of something going on down there that may involve um, a giant bug but in parallel with that there's what starts off with the downtown reaper which is a kind of uh, cool thing there's a there's a like a serial killer going around the town and uh, initially the film starts off with uh, hinting that it may have been uh, a guy but soon develops into obviously it couldn't be uh, anything human. It takes maybe about 10 to 15 minutes to read. Once, once Sabato Jr. and Everhart and the SWAT team get down into the tunnel, once they get down into the subway tunnel to start looking for this bug that they, you know, that that's, that's when the film picks up. But it takes about 15 minutes to get there because the, the weakest, the, the big flaw for me of bugs, well, I'd say big, it's, you know, it's a splash in the ocean. Once you get past it, it's it's over. But the flaw of bugs is that, that initially it frames itself as an investigation picture. You know, mm. it frames itself like it's going to be a police procedural, which really is redundant because in the prologue, we've already seen what's caused this violent killing of a police officer in a tunnel you know we've seen that it's some sort of weird scorpion type thing now some weird monster living in the subway tunnels um but you know if if you're gonna if i'm gonna pick apart bugs because of that i'd have to you know criticize something like octopus 2 and python which um they approach their creature carnage from a similar angle you know they were framed as investigation pictures before you know 
common sense prevailed and we realised, well, people already know what's going on. Let's just throw up. Let's throw all the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and have some fun with it. And thankfully, Bugs nixes that bit for about 10 to 15 minutes because I think that, that's the weakest point of the film, that opening. We've got 23 minutes on the film, the Subway Party Massacre, which is kind of a... Sounds like a slasher film in there somewhere. <laughs> that Subway Party Massacre is, is just sublime. I think it's yeah. the best part of the film. I think it could well be the best sequence in, in almost any sci-fi movie. I've seen, especially the last few shots of that, you've got like a, sort of a monochrome and, and red theme to like those last mm. few the sequence. And then you've got that last bit where the subway doors just gently open yeah. and blood comes out from there. I thought that sequence, I mean, it's only, well, the massacre itself is a couple of minutes, but the last few shots, which are probably only about 10 to 15 seconds, I thought absolutely uh Something else, absolutely something else. Really, really, just you know, what you say about the first fifteen minutes, which kind of throws a bit of a Mickey uh, in regard to the direction it wants to go in. That piece on twenty, twenty-three minutes really does sort of inject you uh, and, and wakes you up and really gets you into the film. It, it's it's a really uh, it's, momentous. It, yeah, it's, uh, it reminded me. You know, I know we we jokingly mentioned bats in our intro. But it actually reminded me of a scene that occurs in Lewis Morneau's Bats. You know, the uh, the bit early on where the entire town gets massacred by all yeah. the bats and stuff. Um, it reminded me of that, and you know, it has this a great, great sense of chaos and frenzy to it. Um, and I do think it's hampered a touch by the budget. You know, but Conti stages it really, really well. Um, a lot of it, so a lot of the time we're like looking in through the windows of the carriage, we're getting just brief glimpses of the chaos that's like enfolding inside it all as the people are getting ripped apart by this giant bug. But yeah, the, the train, the monster stuff. I mean, as 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 a whole, I like the coupling of trains and monsters. I just think yeah. that, that, you know, like Creep, like Midnight Meat Train, I just think uh, I really like that aesthetic. And yeah, there's a, in here, in Bugs, there's a real good rhythmic quality to it but i think it, it, it brings to mind the other sort of what i term brilliant train horror set pieces like on predator 2 and faust love of the damned you know there's a there's a real rhythm going on to it and like you say the kiss off you know that, that when it when the train finally stops at the station and those doors open and it's just a mass of sloppy red blood dripping out just a great great visual you know conti has got a the director joseph conti has got a real real great visual sense he's got a it's a shame he hasn't really done anything much yeah. since, you know because the, the his aesthetic is wonderful yeah i mean you could never paint bugs so simply as just being bugs on a train could you but in saying that it's not the height of originality is it you know it's very derivative with regard to alien aliens rather you know for example that uh, to the degree of the marines being sent in to deal with the issue yeah uh, also you've got a, a touch of mimic in there you've got the whole jaws effect with um, mm. the evil ceo of petronovich enterprises being determined you know not to ruin his big yeah thing so uh yeah very derivative but 
who cares? Because it's just really, really good fun. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I love the whole, you know, because at first they all think that it's just one bug that's doing it. Yes. And that's another thing I love about it, where when uh, Sabato Jr. and Everhart and the SWAT guys go down into the subway, they readily accept that, yep, this is a bug that's doing this. It's a giant bug. There's no bullshit. There's no sort of like, what What do you mean? You've got, you've got to be kidding me. How can a bug do it? Like that they accept that this is the reality and they are going to try and catch it and get rid of it. So obviously it completely flips around because once they get down there, it's soon very, very apparent that it's not just a bug. As per the title, there's a shitload of And I love it. So we get that, you know, like you say, we get the whole aliens thing, which is very cool. Um, that aliens sort of style of shooting, that Starship Troopers style of shooting. Um, and it's you know, and it's all done for the price of what a single xenomorph, or a, of the price of what Paul Verhoeven probably paid for, like one single bug in Starship Troopers. It's what? very very well done. All the shooting and all the gunplay and the running round. Um, there's a there's a touch of like hyper realism to it, you know, and mm. it heightens this immersive feeling that Conti conjures. You know, you actually feel like you're in the middle of a war, um, which is you know the gunshots are deafening. The visuals are just pulling you in. You're getting ragged around all over the place. It's got probably some of the best shaky cam stuff yeah. out there, you know, and obviously done well before shaky cam became an annoying cliche. But one thing that strikes me about it, and I mentioned it in webs, um, that Bugs does have like a, another sort of subtext going on, all that stuff. You know, it, it's almost like an Iraq war illusion, you know, like you, you could maybe read a little bit of that into webs, but, um, you know, I know the invasion of Iraq happened in March 2003, um, so it was probably a little too early. You know, like, the, the, this webs and bugs were both probably filmed well before that. But, you know, I can remember 2003 time, you know, there was conflict was in the zeitgeist, and, you know, you only have to... Look, look at forebearers like them in the 1950s to see that creature features have always reflected the fears of the times. You know, we've said it before with like they nest and stuff where that's a reflection of, you know, the millennium bug anxieties and things like that. So with war, with conflict being so uh, such a an overhanging thing at that part of the noughties, I can see why, you know, you, you it, it would feed into bugs and it would sort of you know, it, it's maybe like an early example of uh, the Iraq War being reflected in a genre film. And, and there's also a, a case for a bit of post 9 11 um, paranoia uh, as mm. well, to a degree. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bugs has a bit of a long history, really. You know, in contrast with Webbs, which was very much uh, sort of put together at the last minute and it felt it, Bugs, um, the development of that, because it stretches back a, a fair way, I think that's echoed in the film itself. I mean, we're going back. We're originally set to go in Mexico in the desert, was it? New Mexico desert? Yeah, uh, yeah. A whole different vibe, but, you know. I mean, you can tell that that translates on screen that, like, Joseph Conti had been wanting to make this movie for years, and eventually it just so happened that when Sci-Fi put the call out that they were looking for bug-type things, you know, that's where he got his hand in and said, I've got this idea. It was originally set in the Mexican desert um, and it had like a lot. I mean, it's got a lot of bugs in anyway. You know, there's yeah. a lot of creature carnage on display, but there was a lot more. There was a bigger range of chaos because it was designed to have a much, much bigger budget than like, you know, the the approximately two million bracket that, bu uh, that bugs ultimately had. Anyway, 
Conti pitched it to Sci-Fi, uh, sorry, who pitched it to Amberlight, and they loved the idea, both Sci-Fi and Amberlight, um, and they said they were happy to make it just with a few stipulations. So it couldn't be an army of bugs, as, as originally envisioned, taking over a city. Um, it had to be smaller and it had to be more contained. So Conti, and again, this just this cements the sort of class that he was going for. He wasn't seeing it as just doing a gun for hire gig like maybe Wu was. Mm. You know, he described his influences in Fangoria for Bugs as being Lifeboat and Jaws. <laughs> Which is interesting. I mean, Lifeboat is a, is a crazy influence, but when you think about it, it does make sense. Going back to the um, special effects on this, we've got a guy who obviously you're very familiar with, which is um, Paul Jones, who started out, of course, with Anthony Hickox on Waxwork mm-hmm. and kind uh, of thing before graduating to um, some Canadian films like Ginger Snaps. Um, great job. Great job. Yeah, tremendous. I mean, like, like you say, he has got an, an amazing pedigree. You know, he, he was born, Jones was uh, born in Shrewsbury in England, and he uh, he got his start with Bob Kane, so, which is why he ended up working on Waxwork 1 and 2, Nightbreed, Hellraiser 2 and 3, Hardware. Uh, stuff he's done since includes Wishmaster, Blade, Shadow Builder, uh, the amazing, amazing wolf stuff in Ginger Snaps. And most recently, he's been doing the uh, effects work for the What We Do in the Shadows TV series. So you know, to say that he's a talent, I think that's a hell of an understatement. Because and, and his design work in in Bugs is just wonderful. It's it's so icky and so gross. You know, and to me, you look at the design of these Bugs and like, I, I, you know, they're, they're like uh, it's as if Jones has looked at the most frightening insects that there is and took bits from each of them. You know, so you've got like you've got a bit of spider. You've got a bit of scorpion. You've got a bit of wasp. You know, and it's it, they're very, very cool-looking monsters. Cool-looking and very formidable. You know, you actually believe these could rip you, rip you apart. Absolutely. Um, Alex Sabato Jr. in this film as well. I think he's a he's a good actor. Again, he, he's someone that we're, we're, we have an affinity with. I mean, he was in things like uh, Crash Landing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's a UFO regular as well for Philip J. Roth, uh, a number of his films. Um and I think he, he suits this material well, where, whereby Greco maybe just didn't really feel right for Webbs. I think Sabato Jr. kind of uh, yeah. is a perfect fit for Bugs. Mm, it's just a shame that Sabato Jr. is such a horrendous, horrific asshole in real life. Oh, you know, have you not heard? Do you, you not know any stuff about Well, he is just a Trump nut, basically. <laughs> So, um, absolute crank. Um, he reckons that he was blacklisted because of his uh, from Hollywood because of his supporting of Donald Trump, um, and because he was conservative, you know. Um, and he actually had the temerity to liken um, being snubbed by studios for his weird political beliefs to uh, being akin to a Jewish person being uh, <laughs> being persecuted in the Holocaust. Just oh, yeah. completely deluded. <laughs> Right wing dickhead, bigoted too. Very bigoted guy as well. Um, he doesn't like how progressive California is apparently, um, which is a bit strange considering he was a Calvin Klein model and an actor. Which you know, considering he doesn't like, he's not a fan of Jewish people. He's not a fan of gay people. You're working in the entertainment industry, pal. Like you, <laughs> you are surrounded by people that you hate. No wonder you're getting blacklisted. But, uh, yeah, not. That was my whole impression of books, to be honest. I'm going to burn my copy when I get home. Um, 
let's, let's separate the art from the artist, you know. Yes. But that's not good. Let's not bring Victor Salva into this. Oh, you then uh, uh, <laughs> go on. you mentioning some sort of celebrity paedophile. It's a great little, uh, great segment, wouldn't it? And today's celebrity paedophile is, yeah. So, so Bugs does share some some weird um, similarities with Webs, other than the fact they were made for sci-fi. Um, both the lead actors in these two films went on to do movies for Asylum. Uh, Sabato Jr. went on to do John Carter of Mars for Mark Atkins uh, a couple of years after this. While Richard Grieco went on to film Almighty Thor uh, with Chris Olin Ray. Uh, so, you know, from sci-fi to the asylum, it seems like a, a fairly uh, natural progression. Uh, but also Grieco and Everhart uh, from Bugs, they, they were in the same film together. They were in a Predator film. Which one? Sexual predator. Oh, of course, of course. Sexual there we go. Which is uh, sort of twist to this. Let's have a creature features or link to it. Yeah, it was released back in 2001, and for some reason it had 52 seconds cut from the UK DVD release. So, uh, yeah, if you're if, if you're in the mood for a sexual predator, make sure you get the uh, American. Greco and Everhart uh, were also weren't they also in? Uh, Garden of, e- Garden of Evil, a.k.a. The oh. Gardener, which is right. uh, with Malcolm McDowell, directed by James Hickox, the director of Blood Surf, and, of course, the, the younger brother of director Anthony Hickox. It's just weird how all this stuff... You know, all roads lead to B-movies, as far as I'm it's concerned. It's incestuous, yeah. in a good way. The best possible that's way. Like- Tra- tracking all these links of it, is, is, that's, that's where the fun is. It's addictive. Right. So, Bugs, it's it's a must-have, isn't it, really? I mean, yeah. out of nine episodes and, and probably ten hours of, of doing this, I mean, it's 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 the essential purchase. That's an mm. essential purchase. Yeah, it's it's just great fun. Any If you are hankering for a stripped-down meat and potatoes spin on Aliens, Starship Troopers, uh, with some very, very cool monster work, um, and a, a, a good visual sense, you know. Conti has a, he can really shape a scene, you know. The, how it, there is not, I don't think there's a single shot or cut wasted in books. Oh. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just an absolute pleasure. I could happily put it on again right now and still enjoy the hell out of it. Um, and it's something that I am actually going to make a conscious effort to do more is to revisit it because yeah. this time it really did blow me away. Absolutely, absolutely, great film. Go and buy it. Can't stream it, buy it, secondhand, quid, bargain. Um, thank you for listening. It's been uh, a pleasure to have you in this weird environment. Hopefully next episode we can have a, a more organic feel to the episode and uh, uh, a slightly better audio, but we shall see. But yeah, uh, thanks for all your, your messages in the last uh, four weeks. Uh, keep on liking our podcast on iTunes and the various platforms. Keep on reviewing it if you can, which also helps just uh, to get us a little bit more publicity. And uh, But mainly, just thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Dave Wayne. You can catch me on Twitter at the Dave Wayne, And uh, you can find me at Matty Budrevich. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the Schlock and Awe page on Instagram. Well, you're welcome to stalk Matty and Dave on Twitter. See you next time on Natural Selection.